Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. I want to make note that that commercial was created when there was no inflation. <laughs> and, you know, there was a, the, a crazy continuation of that insane uh tech-centric bull market. And uh, so I want to credit Rodrigo for his prescience in, um, in, in coming up with that, that narrative, which obviously- felt like, It felt like old men yelling at clouds when we were doing it. Yeah, tilting <laughs> at windmills at the time, for sure. Um, uh, Mark, welcome. Thanks for, oh, thanks for having me. Show. Yeah, we, I've been looking forward to this one. Um, this is obviously right down all of our fairways. So, um, you know, I, I think we're all very comfortable in this sandbox. So looking forward to going a little bit deeper than we sometimes can. Um, before we get started, just a reminder that this is for entertainment slash educational slash informational purposes only and uh, should not be considered advice. You definitely shouldn't be getting your investment advice from uh, three or four uh, gentlemen on, uh, on a Friday afternoon. So with that said, um, Mark, I, I think it's, I mean, you've obviously had a, uh, a long and um, eventful career. And I, so it probably makes sense for you to sort of map out how you got into this crazy business and um, how your career has evolved and, and what you're doing today. Right. I, th I think the best way to put it is, is that I'm still working on the same problem I was working on in the, when I first uh, 
first started in uh, in asset management and, and futures trading. So, you know, growing up in Chicago, you know, I, I had the opportunity to go down to the board of trades when it sort of said that there's a potential job opportunity. And you go to the visiting gallery above the, the trading pits and you look down and you see utter chaos. And I think that you have one of two responses. One response is, get me out of here. This is not anything I want to have anything to do with. I want to work in an office. I want to have a desk. I want to have quiet. And then there's the other group of people who say like, wow, there's something wild going on here. How do I jump in? How do I get involved in this? And you know, how do people make the decisions that they're making? And when you look at all of the craziness that goes on in an exchange and on the floor, you say like, they're constantly making decisions as new information comes in, assessing the information. And you sort of say like, there's got to, what is the skill that you need to make good information or good decisions with limited information? And uh, from that, I, you know, uh, worked at a commodity exchange, you know, I, I got my PhD. So I was sort of said, I want to be more of a researcher, but found that academic research wasn't that exciting. So went back to Chicago, worked for the Mercantile Exchange, worked for some money management firms, you know, as the head of fixed income uh, research for Fidelity and, um, you know, worked at, you know, sort of the large firms, asset management firms, and then worked for John Henry as uh, as his chief investment officer and then the president of the company. So he got, you know, was in the trend following business. And since that time, I've run f commodity fund of funds, consulted for uh, pensions and other, uh, you know, organizations that, uh, that are involved in quantitative and systematic trading. And then uh, doing some, uh, some work on uh, systematic trading now uh, with the, uh, and one of my partners that we're doing some things for some multi-strat so and still help out with manager selection so Excellent. you write very prolifically in your blog but it seems like the bent towards systematic is sort of a, a prevailing theme would you say that that experience under john henry in the trend following business sort of was the one that most impacted your the way that you see markets and the way that you want to attack the uh the original problem as you stated well, it, it a lot has to do with what you think your comparative advantage and skill is, and you know when you some people are very good at discretionary trading and very good at making those decisions on their feet, and I found that I was a person who needed to be very disciplined and structured in my decision. Now, I didn't start out as a trend follower. I didn't sort of plan to be a you know trend follower. I probably sort of said like I came about it as say like this works for me. This works as a way that I think to be able to condense in, uh, information and extract signals. But working for a large money management firm, you know, if you said that you're a trend follower and you work for a large asset management company, that's looked as somewhat askance. You know, you know, everyone says like, "Well, you're just looking at prices." This is this is in the late '80s and early '90s. People were still sort of you know, efficient market people and, you know, behavioral finance was still relatively new. So then when I worked with, uh, with John Henry, I, I think he was unabashedly a trend follower. He said, this is the only way to do things. And, you know, it, it was almost like, well, here's someone who really sort of believes this. And it resonated well with me to sort of say, I understand what he's trying to do. Now, I think that I always sort of said, there's more, there could be more to this 
in the sense that we could use other information too. In, in the sense is it's coming as an economist, I'd say, well, prices trend, but they trend because underlying global macro events or information is also trending. If global markets trend, then prices will trend. So the two of them are, are, are somewhat linked together. And so when you think about that link is, is that I say, you know, the trend follower is saying, that's all the information I need. And I'm sort of saying this is that you could get a little bit of extra value. You could get an extra, you know, uh, uh, you know, performance if you also look at what is the causes of those underlying price trends. But you sort of say that, you know, price is, is first, the, uh, it was, is primal, price is first, but you might just want to understand what are causing those prices and maybe that could help you with your decision making. Right. And the idea that narrative often chases price, even though we tend to, uh, oftentimes a lot of people tend to write that uh, uh, the price is chasing the narrative, so to speak. There's obviously a feedback loop and all that, but it, it, it is something that we have, we would also share. I wonder if you have a few examples uh, in your formative years, uh, examples in, in markets and throughout history that have, sh that, that really kind of gripped your, your uh, the way that you, chose the systematic approach? Like, can you recall a few of these uh, instances when, when they kind of really shaped your perception? Well, you know, I, I see you so said that you could look at it almost every day, every month. You have to do is just pick up the newspaper and you find out that someone will have a certain narrative in the market. They start looking at, uh, with a certain forecast and yet prices don't seem to follow what the forecast is. This is it. I would say that there's people sometimes say, this is what markets should do. When in some sense you should say, this is what markets, uh, this is what is. The price is what the market is thinking. It's not a should, it's an is. And I think that that's important to sort of focus in on, you know, what is it actually telling you? So a perfect example would be is, is that, Let's go back in the spring of this year, right after the uh, uh, beginning of the Ukraine-Russia war. This is I said, well, commodities. This is that you got to buy commodities. Got to have commodities. And all of a sudden, this is that they did pop in and end of uh, in February and then March, and then they peaked in March. And then they came and they, and they started getting lower. Here's a perfect example: is is, is that the narrative was still saying commodities got to go higher, but the markets were telling you something else. So. So in some sense, from a feedback loop, what you want, first want to say, okay, what are prices doing? Prices are primal. This is what I should use as my null hypothesis. This is, should be my baseline. Now I got to try to understand is, is that why is it that the narrative that you're hearing in the market isn't taking place? What am I missing? And when you think about what is uncertainty, uncertainty is actually the gap between what you know and what you need to know. And so the, the fact that prices are going lower, but your narrative is and the you know story that you think is that they should be going higher, that's the true uncertainty because there's a gap between you know what is actually occurring and what you do know right now. So you're missing something. So then the quest has to be, okay, is there something that you need to go out and acquire in terms of information, or should you just follow the null, which is following the trend? Yeah, I think what you're invoking there in a strange way is almost, uh, and, and I sort of came to the same kind of conclusion um, a few years ago 
invoking the efficient market hypothesis where trend following is almost like is almost like an expression of the efficient market hypothesis at the first derivative right like if if price is set at the margin price of a commodity is set at the margin right so we think about all securities yep. as tra tradable commodities price is set at the margin then it's the change in price at each increment in time that carries the only meaningful information you know all of the accumulated flows um, that makes that, that that drove Apple to have the highest market cap, or or at one at another point Exxon Mobil to have the the largest market cap. That's a snapshot in time, but it doesn't tell you where the the next marginal dollar is going, or the ne the next decision that is being made by a by an agent or a participant in market. But it's the it's the changes in trends or the changes in prices that are telling you the average of what the market is betting in the next time increment. Right. And so right. I, I think there's there's a lot to be said for trend as really almost being, you know, the next most humble way to approach markets. You're acknowledging that the average um, participant that is currently placing bets is probably that average is probably your best indication about where price is going next. Right. And right. um you're following the wisdom of crowds, but at a first derivative level, as opposed to at an aggregates level, like um, is typically envisioned for EMH. Right. It, there's an analogy with the corporate strategy. So, so everyone talks about like, well, I want to be a first mover. And when you think about a, a researcher is, is sort of tries to be a first mover, he wants to be ahead of everybody else. What you find out is that in a corporate strategy, sometimes being a first mover actually is not very profitable. You could, you could actually be too early. You could get, you know, run over. And a trend follower is trying to be a, a, a good close follower. So, so, so you want to draft behind the first mover. And the story that often comes in is, is that like, we had some investors that come in and so said like, well, you, you know, you guys trade, uh, trade corn and soybeans. Is it like, what makes you think that you have an advantage? And, and, you know, I sort of like, I don't. I said, I said, Car Cargill or a large grain company has a lot more information than I do. And that's okay. They're the first mover. I just have to be a close follower. And if I'm a close follower and I'm a good signal extractor, then I'm going to do a good job. So, uh, so I want to draft behind them and all the information that they have. I just want to be a good signal extractor. I don't have to be a first mover. And so, the secret, of course, is in the diversity, right? You've got all of these specialists, let, like take Cargill, a specialist in, in a, a, a handful of, of agricultural markets. You've got you know, different metals traders who are experts in metals markets. You've got equity investors that are experts at fundamental investing or a wide variety of different takes on, on equities. So you've got all of these different fundamental specialists and you're not going to necessarily outperform the best fundamental specialists in any of the markets that those fundamental specialists are specializing in. This One of the big secrets of trend following is if you can kind of get half of or extract half of the information that those specialists are, are imbuing on the market by virtue of needing to express their views by impacting prices, but you can do that across all of the markets and not really have to be a specialist in any of them, 
that's the real juice, right? It's not about being a specialist. It's about, it's about being a, the ultimate generalist and being willing to listen to the, the herd of specialists in each of those individual markets without needing to understand the, under, the underlying fundamentals. Surprisingly, markets are, uh, or market specialists are tremendously myopic. So in, in, uh, in a sense is that the fixed income guys, which are, you know, generally the glass is always half empty, you know, uh, they have one set of views and the equity guys who are always glasses half full have a different uh, view. And, and it even carries over to like the story I often tell when I was at, uh, you know, Fidelity and fixed income. Well, we, we'd have companies that would come in to, you know, t- tell us about, you know, what's going on at the company. CFO would come in and we talk to the fixed income guys. They'd say like, you know, our, our rating is really important and we're going to pay down debt and we're going to make sure our leverage is controlled. Then they'd go over to the equity guys and they would say like, well, you got to pump up those earnings. They go like, yes, we're going to increase leverage. We don't care about the ratings. This is all we care about is this is that pumping up those earnings. So we would send like, okay, I want to take my junior analyst. I want you to go to the equity meeting and tell me what they say in that meeting then come back and then we'll talk to them when, when they come back to see us in the fixed income side. So, uh, so there is a lot of myopia. And so the great value of diversification is not so much diverse, not just diversification, you know, for, for providing a reduction in volatility, but diversification because there's myop, myopia and how people look at markets. So, you know, sometimes even when you see the news comes in, the fixed income market will discount that information differently than the equity market. And that causes markets to be out of line. And sometimes the, tr- uh, the trends or the cross correlations are such that you could take advantage of that. So, so speaking of or going back to the idea of narrative, right? So, so far, we've kind of created our own narrative about trend following. Right? It's the idea that, you know, you are identifying price movement and kind of hopping on the narrative train in order to benefit from hopefully a positive PL. Um, and oftentimes I find trend followers or momentum managers taking a very simple story to retail investors and even institutional investors, which is, you know, we're going to, we're going to make money. We can make money anywhere. You know, we're going to find the trend and we either go long or find a trend down where we're going to go short. So Bob's your uncle. It's an easy thing to do, but the reality now, like what's, that's the narrative, right? But the reality is that that doesn't always work, right? The trend following works over time, but not all the time. And we can go through long periods of non-trends, right? So, so how do we, what is, how, do, how would you define trend to somebody that's, that's new? Would you define it in that way or how is right. it that you position it? I mean, that's a, a good starting point, but I think the important point uh, you have is two, twofold. One is that there are a number of different narratives Narrative is is truly important. I know we're going to talk a little bit about management selection, and I, and I think that the whole process of providing a good narrative to investors is critical for any allocation or for investors to invest in a fund. If if they don't if they don't get the narrative, it doesn't matter what math you use. And I think there's also more than one narrative that can apply to us uh, to a certain strategy, but. Generally, I think that the manage uh, we'll call trend following CTAs have never really done a great job of providing an effective narrative for investors. They've tried, 
they've had different narratives at different points in time, but it's ne never been the enough to sort of get large institutional investors to embrace trend following as a core strategy. And uh, the story that comes to mind is I was having, uh, I was at a you know State Street Bank conference and uh, you know I was sitting next to someone who was uh, uh, at the conference, large trend follower. And, uh, and they said like, how are you doing? And they're up close to 50% for the year. And then they, they said like, uh, I said, well, how's the you know, asset, uh, you know, flows coming in? So we got a lot of flows. And I said, like, okay, where, where are you getting the flows from? He said, you know, it's almost all retail. This is like, like the retail flows have been fantastic. I said, well, what about, you know, you're, you're an institutional style firm. You know, why aren't you getting any? He says, the institutions are still having a hard time with this. He said, like, the, the, the in individual investors, the financial advisors, they seem like they get the story or they, they're, they're comfortable with the trend following narrative, but the institution guys are still having a problem. They really have a hard time embracing the story of trend following. And I don't know yeah. if you found that the case. We too, did. I remember, Adam, do you remember when we went to UTAM? Yep. yep. And went and talked about momentum and trend, you know, very captive audience. They all made sense that there was a quantitative team listening to every word that we were saying, you know, they were echoing, uh, the same belief system as the junior quant team. And then at the end of it, we said, so how do we move this forward? And they said, oh, we don't. Like our board and would never approve anything. Like it's, it's value investing or bust. You're, yeah. you're either buying a cheap company that has, is future cash flows and is a true undervalued asset, but to just allocate based on a strategy that looks at price and does more of the thing that's been working just on that change is impossible. It's not going to happen. Well, yeah, I and think also did. the industry <laughs> lionizes investors like Dave Swenson and, and Warren Buffett, who have folksy, clear messaging about buying good companies or, you know, why there's an illiquidity premium in privates and, and, and choosing good managers to select good private companies and then take them public and make them more efficient, et cetera. And, um, Career risk. So Essentially, that, it's a career risk issue. Yeah, but it's also just, I think, a, um, you know, the, yeah, to an extent, but the industry sort of just, a, they adopt things that are understandable, that are, that seem and feel tangible. And if you're a, if, if your board is steeped in the Swenson or Buffett um, mythos, then you know, none of this is going to make any sense, right? It just is, it just is not going to resonate. And And I think that over the last 15 years, because private equity has done well, because you know we've been in an unbelievably great market for especially U.S. equity, um, those belief systems were validated, and there wasn't a need to think outside the box. And we're just and became entrenched, and became but, entrenched, well, and, and hardened. But, and, and, and recency bias played over over more than a decade, and so now just, it's just to echo, really, just yeah. to echo what you said, though, Adam. I'm, we're at a conference right now in in the island. A lot of single family offices are there. I've met a few of these guys. There's a lot of conversation about you. You you were bang on last time I saw you. We're calling the inflation issue and what I could have done and the fact it made money. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I got to stick to my to my core. It's understanding what I do. I can't invest in a black box. Right? Right. I've had two guys say the black box thing. And, yeah. 
it's, yeah, it's really tough. I always sort of that. say that we're not a black box as trend follower. We're, we're actually a clear box because we could tell you exactly how we're making a decision. So uh, the black box is the person is, is that, well, stuff goes into the box and so something happens and then out comes some output, but I can't explain why it happens. This is it. Now that could be a discretionary trader. So now, now I, I think it's, it's really interesting when we, let's go back to the issue of narrative. This is that a value investor could tell a much better narrative than any trend follower because, exactly. because people confuse factoids and knowledge with skill. So if I tell you more about, okay, well, I visited the company and here they're doing, or if like it's an oil company, here's the amount of rigs that they have. Here's the leases they have out in the Permian Basin. You know, here's their success rate. So you give all these factoids. You say, ah, oh, that guy really knows is that company. So I got to invest with him. And if you go to a trend follower who might be trading oil, you say like, well, you know, I'm a signal extractor. The signals are saying I got to go long oil. It feels and, uh, good. The illusion of control, right? Yeah. The, the illusion of control of hearing someone speak so eloquently and, and, and have such grasp of all the minutiae of the industry and the company. And you listen to them speak for 30, 45 minutes. And you're like, yeah, that guy knows. Like, I'm going to invest with that guy because he knows what he's talking about. Meanwhile, the price might be already fully, uh, all his, uh, his, Best case scenario might be fully reflected in the price of the asset and there might be no uh, additional upside. But then again, it just felt good and it gave the investor that level of comfort to, to allocate. So I, I wanted to pull on a thread that we were that you mentioned earlier. You, in a recent uh, blog post, framed the problem or the the uh, the, uh, the investment landscape for trend following as kind of a signal to noise problem where right. they might even be able to make money in both uh, high and low right. uh, volatility environments, but not in the middle or not in the transition. Maybe you can uh, explain to us a little right. bit more of what you meant. Right. So, so let's, you know, we'll start back with the, uh, the whole narrative is this is that, so, you know, in some sense, trend following is easy because we're constantly trying to extract what is the trend, but around that trend, there's going to be noise. Okay, the noise is just a, the up and down movement of, of the day. And so in some senses, this is that when volatility is low, okay, and noise is low, my ability to extract a signal, all things else equal, is going to be fairly high. So if there's a low volatility, I could, I could have, uh, I'd be able to extract my sing signals. I'm going to be successful at, at being able to put on positions. And that could be a good environment for me. And let's take the other extreme is that when volatility is really hard, high, then you get a lot of people start to sort of seize up their decision making. They start to be a little bit slower. They, you know, at the simplest case, they might become more dollar cost averaging type people, or they might say, I've got to put off a decision or I'm only going to scale into a position. And so what happens is, is that you could actually have trends being stronger in high volatility periods. So in high volatility, the signal could be stronger, even though I have higher noise. And in low volatility, the signal could be this is if they have a same signal, but lower volatility, then that signal to noise ratio could still be high and I could still make money. And, and I sort of half joke is this is that to talk about volatility and trend following, I always say that we're long, long volatility. 
because if you have a high volatility, then you can have a lot of dispersion in price. We love dispersion in price, you know, because then the potential place that prices could go to could be much wider. And so there's more opportunity for profit. So at the extreme, you know, there are some would talk about like, well, I'm, I'm an outlier detector. So in, uh, I'm, you may not like that, but we'll just sort of say that that's, that would be at one extreme. But we're actually short, short volatility. And, and when I say we're short, short volatility is, is that your worst nightmare from a trend following perspective is, is that you get a big jump in prices and then it reverses the next day. So you got a lot of, a lot of volatility in the short run because then, then you could get might hit, hit with a stop. You might sort of say, I got to reverse the trade. Then it goes back the other way. And so in some sense, your position is sort of like a knockout option. So, so when I hit my stop, my position gets knocked out. So, uh, so if I buy a call option, you know, I could, I could go, uh, the price could decline, but as long as I have, you know, my, I, I pay out my premium and I'll just wait for the expiration. But, but, on, uh, but with a stop loss and a, and a trend position, it's almost like a knockout. So, so you actually, your high short-term volatility is your enemy, but long, uh, wide, long-term volatility is your friend. So, um, and, and I think that some of the data sort of suggests that now at the same time, what you find out is, is that then the changes in volatility are always the problematic because, you know, you're, you're in some senses that you're changing the distribution of what you're looking at. And that's where you could sort of like get a false signal. So, so that those rapid changes in volatility can also be problematic. And, and I like the way 20... you frame that. Yeah. From 2015 to around 2019, it was a really rough go for trend managers on average. And so do you ascribe that being short, short volatility? Was it a, was it a short volatility few years? Is that what you ascribe most of the pain to? You know, uh, what you find out is, is, is that there is the big overhang from central banks doing their quantitative easing, which, you know, you have, you know, one will have the not it's more than an 800 pound gorilla that's actually pu pushing on the market. Uh, you had the short volatility problem. And I think that there was, we'll sort of say that there was a switch from a lot of traders that, that because medium to long-term trend following after the 2008 great financial crisis, you know, had a bad spell. And I think a lot of people then started to switch into shorter term, faster models and they actually found out that those didn't work. And now we're finding back in, the, we'll say, the uh, you know, 2018 to the present, people have gone back to more longer-term trend following. And, and the longer-term trend is actually allows you to sort of like, uh, you know, sort of move through those short volat uh, volatility spikes. So, so I think that there was a movement to short at, uh, to shorter term trend following at the wrong time. And, and that exacerbated a lot of poor performance in that, you know, but did longer term trend followers do okay. Pardon me. Did long term trend followers do okay. Uh, they didn't do, uh, let's well, say the short term, you got really bad. Long term didn't do as well, uh, didn't do well either. So it was right. a relative difference, but it was just a bad period of time. Yeah. I right. mean, look, central banks were explicitly in the market suppressing large moves, right? When, how, 
how do trend followers make money? There are large moves that persist through time and, and typically go longer and or for longer in time than, than most market participants expected. Right. And, um, and you start looking at all of the different like, like categories. If everybody's doing similar, you know, quantitative easing and following similar monetary policy, then it's hard to trade currencies. So all of a sudden that takes out, you know, one leg of the stool. All yep. of a sudden you had a, uh, a long-term down cycle in commodities. And I think that generally you find is that in commodities, when prices are falling, there's more chop, there's more volatility on the downside relative to the upside. So that took okay. out stool number two. Stool number three is, is that okay, you couldn't trade sort of short-term rates because they were all close to zero and they, were, mm -hmm. they weren't moving at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you find that the long-term rates, you, know, you had the uh, overhang from central banks. So that was stool number three. And what you look at, some people say, well, let's try to trade individual stocks. What you find on an individual stock basis, a lot of them have you know, uh, negative autocorrelation. So, so if you want to talk about a headwind versus a tailwind, you'd like to have markets that are sort of have positive autocorrelation because then you know that, you know, it's just a matter how do I exploit that or how do I extract that from my trend model? If it's negatively autocorrelated, this is that you've got like a headwind that's working against you. So like every day there might be, or in the short term, it's it's constantly reversing and you've got to try to sort of walk the walk beyond that to try to make money. So which kind of jives with some of the other forces in addition to the Fed that we know have had acting, particularly the equity markets, namely market makers. I mean, after the great financial crisis, large institutional uh, players and, and money managers started to hedge their positions a lot more. And so the market makers became another important driving force in the markets. And in addition to the uh, passive or or uh, yeah, the, the index tracking vehicles that became these price insensitive movers in the market that I think uh, engaged in some of the uh, behavior that you're just describing. So. It's a it's a complex uh, problem. But, of, of, but it is interesting. I, I just pulled up just broad indices like commodity, U.S. dollar, uh, Acquiex U.S., U.S. Um, and trend followers required, I guess, a trend upward or a trend downward. And what you observe in those periods of pain is that there were there was just no there were just flat. Yeah. They literally just went flat and no in everything but the S&P and the Nasdaq. Exactly. But even the, like the fourteen. <laughs> 14 was a good year for trend following. That's yeah. when commodities, you know, took it in the chin. Um, but of course, the problem is that you quote the NASDAQ and and treasuries even were doing okay. And so you're, you're thinking, you know, there's a trend. Like, how can you not? That's the, the biggest trend we've seen in 10 years, in, in 100 years on in NASDAQ. How could trend followers not be making money? You know, it goes back to the, the pain of being diversified and every which way you cut it, whether you're diversified globally as a long only investor or whether you're a diversified trend following manager, right? It's, right. it's a, it's a tough go when, when you go flat for decades, it's almost like trend following needs to be matched up with some sort of, uh, uh options trading strategy, um, Carry. To, to capture, right. yeah, some sort of, some sort of spread trading. And there is the sort of, I, I call it the dirty secret of trend following is, is, is that everyone talks about diversification. I want to have a lot of markets because I need diversification. Now the, 
you make the most money trend following when a lot of stuff starts getting correlated and then everything starts trending together. This is it. Because if you have everything uncorrelated, then you might make money in half the markets, you lose in half the markets, and you net, you net out to something that might be slightly positive or zero. This is that you say, like, I want, you know, there are a lot of trends to occur. I want them to be correlated. And I, you know, I want to trade those different markets because they may not all move at the same time. But I, but, but you say like is to say, wait, inflation goes up. This is a godsend because then you say that now we got a whole bunch of markets going up at the same time. And the other reason why I just love inflation is because, you know, inflation causes price distortions, and price distortions causes people to believe the markets are more uncertain. And if there's more uncertainty, they're gonna that puts you know sort of. Uh, grit in the, you know, and uh, the engine of, of decision making. So if there's more grit there, then they're going to slow down their decision making. And that's good. Inflation causes distortions. I want I want to I think that then you can exploit those dis distortions. Well, yeah, I mean, you certainly get dis discordance between central banks, right? You're going to have different policies for dealing with inflation. Every country, depending on how they're affected, what they import, what they export is going to have different issues. That affects the political angle as well as to how they handle it in contrast to anybody else. And so for the first time in many years, it's not U.S. dollar and everything else, but it's many cross trades of those currency pairs, which also affects their, their fixed income markets and so on. That's where the dispersion comes in. I mean, inflation tends to break things and create that disparity right. that, uh, that definitely helps active managers. Right? Well, it's, it's more than just policy differences when you think about it. Is, is that, you know, because, uh, okay, let's say a commodity price is going up. Is that going up because of inflation? Is it going up because there's a demand problem? Is it going up there's a supply problem? And you don't really know what is causing that. Or even if you sort of say a, a company that is a, having increase in sales. Well, you know, is it because they just raised their prices and, and is that what's causing it? Or is it because, you know, they've got a lot of people that want whatever they're producing. So, so the, so the uh, uh, perniciousness of, of inflation is, is that we use prices as signals to tell us how we should act, how we should invest, what we should buy. And if the prices are being distorted by inflation, then, I can't make good decisions, and that's and, and that's what's really that. Then that's going to cause companies to be more dispersed. It's going to have commodities to be unclear what they're doing. Uh, you know the you know what right now is sort of fixed income is is that with inflation now is this, is that you know you, you've got significant inflation and so that you look at uh, expectations and the you know even 10 year or five year five year forwards is that those still pretty low this is that there's a huge gap between what we're seeing in inflation and what they're expecting is this is that and what is the real rate of interest if if you have volatile inflation so uh one thing that they always talk about is is that uh i think paul samuelson said is is that uh uh Markets or uh, micro markets are efficient, and macro markets are inefficient. Yeah, and sure. and this is a this kind of environment that causes inefficiencies, and that's where you want it, and that's where price information will help you exploit that. So a perfect example is is that what is the fair value for a bond right now? So you know, hard to say. So if you sort of say, well, what's the fair value of Ford? 
you could say, well, I look at GM, I look at Tesla, I look at others. I could, I could say, okay, here's the relationship I should see for there. So there's a limit to how far there's uh, that that arbitrage will get out of line between auto companies. But on the macro side, this is that, you know, what's the value of the dollar? What's the value of of a ten year bond? Is yeah, that comparing apples to oranges? Their value then prices become a really uh, good indicator of you know what you should be uh, what you should be doing following prices may be mo more rational than trying to figure out what is the you know fair value for the 10 year now mark do you think it's inflation that creates these dislocations or is it the the rate of change of inflation and possibly it'll be similar as the rate of change of disinflation comes our way eventually like what what are, is it is one side different than the other or are they kind of both uh, two sides of the same story well we uh so there's two parts there's the uh the level and the dispersion of inflation and so so uh when you see that inflation is higher then the dispersion or we'll call it the volatility of inflation gets much greater and that's what's really causing the distortion and that's what really uh you know causing the problem so you look at the CPI that we had just the other day. Is this is that the reality is is that hey, we are like uh, three tenths or less. You know, you know, we're pretty low relative difference versus what was last month, and then versus consensus. And so, but all of a sudden, is that people extrapolate this out because you know, 0.3 percent is uh, uh, is is noise, but it but it's a uh, it's it's caused uh, a lot of people to readjust their expectations. Well, so much is, has to do with positioning too, right? I mean, if if um, markets, if uh, investors hadn't come into that print so unanimously short, or so unanimously long the dollar, or so unanimously short rates, right? Uh, then you know we we wouldn't have seen nearly this kind of move, right? Um, I want to pull on something you you mentioned, which I think is a really important point, Mark, about. The fact that trend followers make the real money when a lot of the markets all um, all correlate all, or all end up kind of moving in sort of the same direction, right? Right. Um, and I think that's that's a really good insight. I think what's uh, what I want to add to that is that by virtue of being able to view, so what's what's happening, right? Is that there is there is one big muscle movement in from a macroeconomic standpoint that is converging and driving you know several sectors to all kind of move persistently in a direction right and so you're not really picking up it's not like every individual market is operating on its own they're all expressing a dimension of one bigger force right but right. what's great about it is that you're able to view that that larger force from a wide variety of slightly different angles, right? So you don't have to make one big bet. It may converge largely on, on one big bet. Like certainly we know over the last few weeks, probably several months, that systematic managers have been long, long the dollar and short rates, right? How do we know that? Because when everything reversed yesterday, universally systematic managers all got you know, all got hurt. They all got right. hurt together on exactly the same trade, right? What was that trade? It was betting on more persistent inflation and a more hawkish Fed for longer. Now we get a print that suggests that maybe we don't, we are, 
so confident about that. And all of the different markets that were pricing that particular force then reverse together and you get, right. you know, a, a difficult few days. Well, I, I guess the one thing is, while I said, I said a dirty secret is, is that we want them to be highly correlated because that's where we make the most money. The, uh, the other part of the dirty secret is, is that when we all get correlated our positions, we also are taking a heck of a lot more risk too. So yep. if things go uh, reverse, then you're going to have a big problem. But exactly. You know, the difference between what I'm talking about is, is and, and let's say a discretionary trader is, is that like a discretionary global macro trader will say, well, I've got, you know, X number of bets. But usually what happens, they're, they're one bet expressed in a number of different markets. So, mm -hmm. And a trend follower would say, I'm not going to come up with one specific bet, but my model may signals are all similar so i organically turn into a single bet exactly but it's not because i have the view the markets are organically telling me that there's something going on that's similar across markets that would cause me to be positioned in the same way yeah it's an emergent and to your earlier on <clears throat> yeah to, to your earlier point you were talking about how different markets will discount news in different ways and over different time frames. Uh, back in, in February and March, well, I think particularly in February of 2020, we started to see several markets rolling over quite aggressively, particularly copper and some other uh, metals in the run-up uh, to the COVID crash. Throughout your, uh, your professional life and in your experience, have you seen some markets be uh, uh, the truth if you will, converge into a, a, a price level that is more is more accurately reflecting what is in the market. Other markets have been slower uh, uh, to to arrive at that same quote unquote conclusion. Right. Uh, you know, the truth may change at time to time, but there are a couple that, you know, are, are sort of a bellwether, market, which, you know, are, are, are it, seems very consistent. We know that oil is a bellwether market. Okay. You know, it's, it's almost as though that, uh, because if that rolls over and it goes higher, eventually that's going to spill over so that, so it may move first, but eventually then it's going to have spillover effects in other markets is that we'll sort of say that, uh, you know, you know, dollar euro, uh, dollar yen, you know, sort of sort of major currency markets is, is that you can see one moves and then you're going to have a spillover to the other is, is that you'll look at, uh, uh, you know, ten-year bond. Uh, you know, it's and then uh, and then you could sort of look at you know the large equity indices. This is that. So you have some some bellwether, and then and then in some sense, a lot of people say, well, I'm going to make more money as a trend follower by trading more markets and then trading uh, you know the less liquid markets. This is that usually what happens is that they might actually trend more because there's less liquidity and there's less traders involved but they're usually still sort of correlated to one of the bellwether. So, so if, if gold starts moving, you're going to start to get some of the other, you know, precious metals moving along and some of the tre trends may be, the signal may be stronger. It may last longer. Uh, crude oil moves and then you might say products start moving along with it. So, so, uh, so, and they might last longer. So that's where you get the opportunity. I want to acknowledge Michael Harris uh, asked a question in the comments about volatility scaling, and this is this is a perennial topic of discussion oh, yeah. <laughs> in, in the in in the trend channel. So maybe um, 
Uh, Mark, I don't know if you have any specific thoughts on that. <clears throat> right. And this is, uh, we'll sort of say that those are battles that were fought, I think, you know, we'll say when I was at, at a major trend follower where we, uh, where, you know, we'd say like, how do we handle volatility? How do we target volatility? And so on uh, some senses is that you, you sort of say like, well, you know, volatility is going to affect your signal to noise ratio. Right. So, so that, so that on one hand you have to think about how do you include volatility or how do you use that as an input in this, this, we'll call it the signal extraction. So, so, so that's the return side. Then there's also the volatility of say like, well, how do I want to scale, you know, certain, certain markets is, is, is that natural gas is going to be more volatile than another market. So you can't sort of say, I'm going to put the same dollar amount. So, so that's the second that makes, makes a big difference. And then you'd say like, well, what is the range of volatility that I want to have in, in my, uh, in my fund overall in the portfolio? And I think the one thing I get really nervous about is that people who sort of say, well, I want to target the volatility at the portfolio level, because then that mean, uh, means is that if you don't have a lot of positions on, that means you're going to have to scale those up more to sort of hit your, your target for your portfolio. When in some sense, I'd like, I like to sort of see more volatility in the portfolio itself. So if there are less opportunities, you shrink the size of the portfolio, you shrink the risk, the volatility goes down. And then sometimes if there are a lot of opportunities, you allow the volatility of the portfolio to go much higher. So, so you allow for more, uh, you know, volatility in the, in the, at the program level based on the set of opportunities you have. Yeah. So you That's get really conviction weighted exposures in the market rather than just assuming that you always have the same edge. Right. Like right. your exposure in the market should reflect the the edge that you have in, in trading today on all of the different markets that you're trading. We shouldn't just always be assuming right. we have the same the same edge. Right. So so we're looking at uh, some model you know, recently with, uh, you know, one of my, uh, you know, um, a friend, we were, we were working on this and um, you say, well, okay, since we want to have it, this is that it's going to be a scaled factor. And and, and so so we, the signals were, were have, have a scale and then we could rank order all of the positions. And then, and then, but if the scale sort of gets close to zero, we could say like, well, technically we could have a situation we have no positions on. So, because we're just not getting anything that was, we think that has a appropriate return to risk. And I said like, well, can we live with a situation that we might go all the cash? And we said, like, yeah, we we like that. That might be a, that might be the best option for this portfolio. And in that sense, this is that uh, you know, well, how, how does that from a volatility sense? This is that some clients would sort of say, like, well, I can't believe you're you know, take that volatility over some range to sort of like a really low number. And we said, like. That should be fine, but we just want to also have the ability that, you know, if we're seeing a lot of opportunities, we want to sort of ramp it up. Like your worst scenario is, is that you have good trends in place. You're making money with those trends. And then someone says, well, because we want to put a cap on volatility, we're going to start peeling off our positions. We're going to peel off our risk. And so we're going to reduce our ability to make money when, when we have the greatest opportunity for, for profit. Now you might say that, you know, 
because volatility on an individual market gets so high that my signal to noise is now low, therefore I should be off risk. That's fine. The question is, is that if let's say the portfolio is making money and you got a lot of positions on and, and markets are getting more volatile, but you have quote unquote good volatility as opposed to bad volatility, you want to sort of keep that good volatility on. Yeah. Mm, so specifically, I think um, Michael was referring to, so you're setting a you're setting a risk budget for a trade on on the entry of the trade and i'm sort of describing it more of a traditional kind of trend strategy like a breakout strategy or something but but so you've got a position on now there's the the price is broken out or or whatever your your um, signal is fired and you've got a risk budget for for that position if the volatility of the underlying market jumps as you've got your position on do you want to manage the um, the size of that position so that if volatility escalates dramatically, you're going to lower exposure partway through the trade? Or do you just always um, have the same risk on that you originally put on um, and allow you know the, the market to, to run as far and as fast as, as it will without trying to manage the underlying risk? Right. I'm going to be half pregnant on this thing. So, so in some senses is that you always want to look at what's your end to risk ratio. So, so what you, you know, I always go back to this, you know, principles of, you know, signal to noise. So, so in some sense, if my, you know, return to risk for that particular trade is really high, even though the volatility is going higher, but my, you know, my opportunity set is really strong, then, you know, I might, you know, hold on to that. Now, there might be a final cap on how much, you know, max risk I'll take in any one position. So so that might be constrained. But if let's say I just have a jump in volatility, but I'm sort of saying I got a really good you know, signal, I might sort of stick with that. But, you know, if let's say that I'm just have, you know, when you think about it, this is that if the, if I'm looking at just a linear extrapolation of, of a trend, and I had a spike in volatility, my signal to noise ratio has gone down. So by definition, it may become a less attractive trade. And so I might be taking some of that off. Interesting. Yeah. And so I just want to pull on that a little bit, Mark, because you're now, um, you hinted at this idea of expectation, right? And I think this idea of, of having ex an expected return or an expected sharp ratio um, for a for a trade is generally anathema to to the sort of classic trend followers, right? And then this might be a really good segue to, to get into something that we talked prior to the show about the idea of, of ideologues versus pragmatists, right? I, I may be connecting the wrong dots there, but, but I do definitely want to get there. But how do you think about that? Because, I mean, we, serve, we, we run it as quants rather than as trend followers, and we, we explicitly have expected um, returns for each of the trades. All of our models have an expectancy. We sum all the models that has an expectancy, but that is anathema to, I think, how the original kind of trend, classic trend mechanics works, right? Where right. it's like, there's, there's a signal, I'm on. Right, right. In, in some sense, yeah, the classic trend follower would say is, is that all I'm looking at is is what is the price doing relative to some measure of, of, of trend? And as long as it's above it, I'm going to do it. And, and you know, some right. would argue, 
trends will always go longer than expected, which is is sometimes the case. But you know, realistically, is is that if you're you know if you're you know sort of look at markets, you know that at some point this is that you you have some idea of how long a trend might last from past data. You could sort of say like how much you know how much you know move has it happened in the past. Now it could be greater than that. But you could sort of scale it, have an idea of exactly what should be the expected return on a trade. And I think that that could be, a well, what's the environment? So so if we're in a you know, recession regime, then I might expect that a downtrend in equities could last longer than it would if I was in a you know, steady state or a positive regime. And so you can use that to sort of give you a little bit of, of, of help and support in how you look at the portfolio. Because... The, the one thing that would drive me just completely batty and this is just, just like always like it, it, it and it'll probably have lost more hairs about this when you sort of see that you follow a trend trend is going up and then all of a sudden you start to give back some profits because it's you know the market is starting to go down and it hasn't gone through the the you know let's say your simple moving average so so you you know it's say you, you had a trade that you may have made 20 percent on but then you gave back half the profits. So it's only 10%. And then, and then you say like, Oh, eh, someone will say that was a great trade. We made 10%. And, you know, as a, as a fixed income bond guy, I'm saying it's like, that was a great trade, but I lost 50% of what I could have made. It's is that I'd rather have gotten out before the peak and then sort of found another opportunity somewhere else, as opposed to ride it to the peak, go beyond, and then sort of give up half the profits. This is that that really is painful, and, and I think that's the uh, so so there the two real pain points for any trend followers. One is is that giving back you know uh, you know money from the max uh, price, and then the other is just getting you know stopped out. So you know stopped out is 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 that uh, is you know, it's a necessary part of the business because it's telling you something is wrong. And uh, and I always sort of say it's like I'm being Ulysses lashed to the mast when we go past the sirens is, is that, you know, I got to stop my, stop myself from from hitting the rocks. So, so you got to you have the stop loss. But those are the two pain points is, is that, you know, when you get stopped out on positions repeatedly because then, you know, you're something is wrong. And then the second is, is that when you know that you had a trade that could have, you could have made X, but you gave back half, half the profits. So Mark, yeah, so I think it's just a, it's just, it's just, it's a completely different view. Like, I think if we had, you know, the, some of the, some of the old school turtle traders on having this conversation that their hair would be on fire, right? Because absolutely. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, but, 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 but we view it in, 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 in a very similar light, right? That, that there's context, there his, history can inform what you should expect based on, you know, the, the nature of price movement over a wide variety of different look back horizons, a wide variety of different types of moving average windows, et cetera, and conditioned on other stuff like the shape or, or a slope of the term structure, uh, seasonality effect, et cetera, right? So it was, I agree, but I just want to acknowledge that, that there will be trend followers listening to this who are, you know, punching their, their screen. <laughs> and, well, and, and that's okay. In fact, you know, uh, you want to have 
a variety of trend followers. So, so the agreed. Uh, so the question that always comes in is, is that well, the trend followers, they're 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 a, they're a herd, you know, they're 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 you know rolling over markets in in some commodity markets. Is is that they all trade at the exact same time? I think the important point to sort of say that uh, from a manager selection point of view, and then just from saying is that when you see hear the word trend followers, they're not all the same. Everybody yeah. has a slightly different nuance in how they want to exploit opportunities and what they do. And you have to uh, understand and appreciate those differences. So the classic, and we'll uh, we get talked about the ideologues. So like the, Yes, please. The, the, the ideologue will sort of say, like, this is the way I do it. If I'm a turtle trader or if I, this is the way I've been doing it, this is where I've always done it. You'd never change your models. This And anybody who does it, do it this way. <laughs> it's sort of like... Ah, they're you know they don't they don't know what they're talking about, and uh, and we'll probably sort of say that the U.S. trend followers have generally been more fo following into the ID log camp, and it's, and it's a lot has to do as they started early, uh, you know, at, at a, a given time in history, and so they made a tremendous amount of money, you know, following that that system, and so so I think that it was like well. You know, it's important to be a purist. Okay, I would sort of say that uh, I, I sort of half joke. The other approach is the uh, uh, the pragmatist or the uh, of of Europe, and so Europe, you know, the European is probably much more of a pragmatic from a political and a, a number of issues. And so, so we'll say that the London CTA mafia is probably. <laughs> much more, uh, you know, sort of agnostic or they're, they're more pragmatic relative to the U.S. ideologues. So now what you found is, is, is that, uh, that when trend following is done very, very well, those pragmatists have underperformed. The ideologues right. have, have, have won. So, so during certain periods of time, the, you know, ideologues have, have just, <laughs> you know, gathered a tremendous amount of money and the pragmatists have, you know, sort of had a smoother return, but they, they missed out on those, those big trend explosive periods. So, so, you know, I don't have all the numbers in front of me of, let's say our, you know, the, uh, we'll call it, uh, I call it the, the London trend mafia or, or CTA mafia, but then you look at them versus some of the, you know, more to, ideologue managers, pure trend followers, is that you could see the gap between their, their uh, you know, return to risk ratio and, and, uh, and what their performance has been this year versus maybe other periods of time where they may have done, um, they may not have done as poorly as the ideal done. So, uh, and a lot of this, you also, you got to think about in terms of history is this is that, you know, the reason why, you know, long-term trend followers or long-term trend followers in the seventies and eighties were because that's what the market allowed. I don't know. Do you ever look at what the, uh, you know, you know, the what round the trips brokerage cost you paid when you were in yeah. the 1980s, you're paying like $80 a round turn. So, yeah. so it was just, you know, amazing. Then you sort of say, well, what's the, what's the price per round turn you're paying now? This is, is right. it, uh, you know, you're probably yeah, you can trade a lot more now than you could then, right? Yeah. And, and let me put this you have to keep you're, it simple. 
the the fees you pay to the exchange and then to the CFTC are probably more than what you actually pay to the broker. So uh, and so as as uh, now an interesting part was is, is that because markets became electronic, markets uh, you know costs came down, uh, bid offer spreads were tighter, uh, brokerage costs were lower. Then all of a sudden, people got on the faster trend-following bandwagon because you said, "Like, well, why not? This is it's cheaper to trade, so I could trade faster and more." And so, uh, and the and the long-term guys are sort of like, "Well, I got that, I got an advantage here, but I, you know, uh, but this is where I my bread and butter is long-term." And so, but then the guys who started later in the '90s or 2000, they were faster guys, traders, for a simple reason is is that. For them, the environment was cheaper to go fast. Right. Yeah. So, uh, how has your trading evolved? Then uh, you, you started off and under John Henry in, in a more purist, perhaps uh, uh, trend following, maybe ideologue. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe it was a more of a classic approach. And then you arrived at, you know, your current state uh, uh, moment in your career where you're toying with these different ideas, these different approaches. I wonder. Within the trend following, do you have a preferred uh, style? Is it breakouts? Is it moving averages? Do you think some of them lend themselves better to some markets versus others? And then a second part of that question would be, have you married other styles to trend in order to create a, a, a more of a multi-strat approach? So I think that there's always been an approach of trying to marry different styles. And, and because you know, a perfect example is, is, is that, you know, uh, when people talk about diversification, I always use the term, uh, STM. You want to look at style, timing, and markets as your three dimensions for diversification. So, so you want to have uh, market diversification. So you trade a lot of different asset classes. It doesn't have to be the number of markets, but the number of class, the number that is uncorrelated across. So, so, so you cover that. But there is a limit to what you can do on and market diversification before you you know bump up against you know liquidity issues. And then the other place where you're going to get a lot of, you know, bang for your buck is, is timing. This is that, you know, sometimes long-term trend following does well, probably intermediate to long-term in the long run does better, but sometimes short does better. And then when you blend those signals together, is is it, you're going to get a better, you're, you're probably better mix. So, so uh, short-term is, is it can get a little choppy, but, you know, it does sort of take you out of some, when you net it all out, you take out some of the extremes. And then, and then you look at uh, at style. So uh, you can have breakouts, which is I, I always call it a a nonlinear system. And then you can have a simple moving average is more of a linear type of system. So you can you know move between those those two. And then, but then you also can think about style difference and exactly what you're trying to extract from the market. So you're doing a uh, FX program, and there we sort of said. Yes, we want to have a trend con, uh, component, but then you also wanted to have a carry component, and carry does really well. It does well when trend following uh, is not doing well. You just need to have to have a, a conditional factor, and this is when you get more sort of global macroy. This is that if volatility pops, or there are certain conditions, or if there's certain stress in the market, you got to get out of carry. And if you if you play play it blindly, you're going to get you know crushed. Uh, and and those are the t- you know times when also trend following will start to do better. Okay, and then you also want to look at something. You could look at fair value models. You could look at models of volatility. So so you and 
we were doing one thing for you know, a couple of clients where we build portfolios of alternative uh, risk premium. And you could sort of say, well, you can bundle up different risk premium together and can get a pretty good portfolio that is going to give you a smoother return. And now this gets into the classic problem is, is that we know that trend following is going to have a lumpy returns. It might be really good over the long run, but it's going to be lumpy. And hard to you know, stick with running a business. Sometimes you got to just sort of say people don't want lumps. No. In some sense, when I talked about a trend follower that earlier is up 50% for, for the year, is that, that think of what the impact that just uh, done on their, their last three year track record or last five year track record. You have a 50 year up move, then they're thumping their chest. And as all ones are saying, it's like, well, look at my three-year, you know, uh, yeah, annual yeah, yeah. returns. You know, it's, it's that, you know, if you did it on a five-year basis, you, you have one year fifty percent. That just adds five percent to your your annualized return. So you could have some pretty bad performance in the first four years, and then that fifty percent number so it turns you into a stellar manager. Yeah, over lots a of one period. stars went to five stars this year for sure, and yeah. back to three, and then back up to five. So, so Mark, let's talk a little bit about the, you, you talk about clients and allocations and putting together portfolios for people. Uh, we've, we've done a lot of work in trying to, to change the language of capital efficiency and, or portable alpha into the return stacking concept, right? Because the biggest issue tends to be, I want my 60-40 return, or I want my equity portfolio return. I don't want to give, I don't want to carve out performance from my traditional portfolio to put in this like chunky, non-correlated strategy. Um, and so for me, it's a no brain. It's always been, you don't have, why not, why not yes and this, right? Get your portfolio and then stack the returns of your trend following manager on top. And you could do that now with mutual funds and ETS, but, but for, for single family offices, for institutions, it seems to me like carving out an allocation to buy a fund of funds versus stacking managed futures on top, which is capital. It's super easy to do in contrast to trying to kind of stack a, a long short equity manager, right? That, that's very costly. Yeah. Just the way futures work seems to be a perfect tool to get to yes and this problem. So I, I'm, my genuine curiosity is, even though this is a no-brainer, it seems to be very hard for us to, you know, we have a few family offices where we're stacking futures on top of single positions that they're not going to sell them ever. Um, but broadly, I'm not getting a lot of traction uh, on that. So when you deal with clients, how often are you being asked to do a capital efficient portfolio for them versus carving out from their portfolio to create an allocation? What's the, what's the, uh, well, I think it's still like sort of the carve out, like, okay, we're, you know, we're thinking of giving a 3% allocation as opposed to, you know, when, when you think about the trend following, okay, that, that. And or, you know, if you want to call it, you know, it's, it's interesting in language is that we always call it trend following is, is that if you're an equity guy, it's always got to be momentum. momentum so yes. so so it's a momentum factor. So that could be trend following. And, and I think there's been some academic research. So trend following does better than, you know, the moment classic momentum style. But so they want momentum. And so we talked to a lot of clients where you say, like, well, what you really should think about is, is that let's let's take, for example, your 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 bond portfolio. So you get sort of corporate credit. So basically what you have is treasuries. And on top of that, you've got an alter, you've got a risk premium. And the risk premium is your, is your credit exposure. Yeah. So why don't we take the following is, is that let's get rid of some of, you know, 
corporate bond exposure because because that may be a bad time in this in a cycle. And what we'll do is we'll take the treasury portfolio and we'll overlay on something, you know, some other alternative risk premium on top. You could call it momentum. It could be something else. But you say, like, in some sense, that's very capital efficient. All you're doing is swapping out one risk premium for a different risk premium. That risk premium could be associated with trend. It could be momentum. It could be something else. But, you know, that's a more efficient use of capital and uh, or even the classic is that in that people sort of say like, ah, oh, I hate that volatility that you have in there. Say so like, well, let me put it this way. If you if you want to get a real impact from trend following, you want to find the the most volatile trend follower you have. All you care about is the information ratio. All you care about is return to risk. But then And then you want to find the guy who has the highest volatility because for any dollar exposure you give, for a high volatility for the same, you know, sharp ratio, you're going to get a much more bang for your buck on your overall portfolio. And, uh, you know, that, that, uh, and, and I understand this is, you know, I, I was going to say something like, well, that's a hard concept is that I think they understand it. It's just that the, the, the pain that they'll see if something goes wrong is so high that they're sort of saying, you know, my, my career risk or the pain risk of trying to explain that is much higher than my, you know, my, uh, the gain I'm going to get from, uh, from efficiency. And that's the human nature that, that we see is, is that we live in a world of regret, you know? So, uh, and there's a book on by as, uh, I think it was like Daniel Pinker. And he said like, there's two types of regret. There's that there's regret if, if only, if only I did this, you know, that's the one type of regret. The other regret is, well, at least this didn't happen to me. And so, so in some sense, a lot of the family offices is that they, they don't want to suffer that regret of, well, you know, of, of, you know, sort of investing and then it, and something goes wrong. So, uh, and this gets back to, when we talked about the whole narrative storytelling is, is that how do you sort of tell quick stories, good stories that can get people to sort of have that light bulb moment. And, you know, some people sort of push the idea that, <clears throat> well, storytelling, you know, telling, telling narrative, you know, that's all marketing. But when you think about, you know, great scientists that, Scientific Feynman. ideas were popularized when they were associated with a great narrative. Mm -hmm. So, so narrative drives science, narrative drives data, and narrative drives allocation. This is it. You just got to find the right narrative. <laughs> just to take it one step further, to Mark, uh, building on Rodrigo's point about return stacking. Um, I'm perpetually scratching my head at um, why allocators don't think more deeply about the trade-off between allocating to a small number of multi-strat managers versus a larger number of managers that are dedicated to a single strategy. and. I'm, I'm motivated by a few things. One is, first of all, if you're paying performance fees, then you're going to pay a lot more performance fees. If you've got five funds that are each one in 20, you're going to pay a lot more performance fees to those five funds 
than if you were to take all those five funds, wrap them up in one multi-strat and then pay performance fees on the performance of the multi-strat because the amount of performance fees that you pay inefficiently is a function of the sharp ratio of the underlying strategy that you're, you're paying performance fees for. So that's number one, you're paying more fees. Number two, you don't get any of the, or you get much less of the potential capital efficiencies. So you've got five different sleeves. They're relatively uncorrelated. Um, you, you're allocating to five different funds. Each fund is, is, is 15 ball. You put them all together and the portfolio is like 10 ball, right? right. Whereas if you were to put them all together in a single fund, you could then rescale that up so that you've got a higher sharp portfolio that is delivering 15 balls, so higher expected returns for the same you know, level of risk. And then the third thing is just the a massive cost of all of the extra trading. So you've got five different managers, they've got uncorrelated trading strategies, which means that, you know, and, and they all have an information coefficient of point. Five one maybe, so there's a lot of unproductive trading going on at all of the five funds. One of the funds is buying ES today. Another fund is selling ES today. Another fund is buying ES. Another fund is selling ES. All this is unproductive trading, and if you put them all together in a in a commingled account, you get to net out all of those trading. And our estimates suggest that you that's a, like a twenty five percent or more boost to expected net performance after accounting for all the opportunity for trade netting. So lower fees, higher capital efficiencies, and way lower trade cost drag. Why are more institutions not moving in the multi-strat direction? And, and, and I think they are. I think that it's the issue is, is, is that uh, we celebrate the idea that people are slow to react because that's how we make money as trend followers. <laughs> and yet, you know, in some sense is that we're seeing this process occur. This is that in some sense, you look at fund of funds, you know, fund of funds, you know, was everybody wanted to invest in fund funds. And then, then they sort of say like, that really isn't a solution. And so there have been a movement to, you know, multi-strat. Multi-strat is a great way to be able to sort of break out all, all the, you know, cost you know, the high cost structure of a fund of funds, and uh, some of the biggest ones are closed. And so, so in some senses, is that you know there's got to be another uh, another set of managers to do that multi-strat business. And then, in some sense, when I was talking about alt-risk premiums, is that you could be able to build a swap portfolio of you know alt alternative risk premium <laughs> swaps. And you could be able to do all that, you know, in, in that same structure, you could create a multi-strat or a fund of funds in a box. So, uh, okay. But even in that, if you've got five different um, strategies, let's say you're buying five, five strategies swaps. from a bank, right? But you're buying them through swaps. Someone's trading that portfolio. You got a, a, someone's trading the carry swap portfolio. They're, they're trading the trend swap portfolio. It, and so you're still not getting any of that trade netting. Right, and so you have to this, rebalance across the swaps exactly as well. Yeah, yeah. You, well, there are a different. So, so you get the extra turn to be able to uh, to be able to point to here's my performance and such. So there's advantages that way. Is is that sure. you still have is that there there is there is sort of like I say there's some trading on the back end either because of the swap dealers doing the trading or. Uh, and then you could sort of say you don't get any expertise because you're buying an index. 
as opposed mm -hmm. to if you do a multi-strat, is, is that uh, in some sense you could it, you can learn, you can have a feedback loop, and you can actually then be able to improve the models. This is that the problem with the alt-risk premiums is, is that you're buying a certain index representation of a risk premium. And so now if that if you feel as though that there's no longer a fair representation of the strategy, you just got to unload it and go on to the next thing. Yes. If you have a multi-strat, you could sort of say is, is that and something is not going well or there's a change in market structure, I can learn from that and be able to improve. So you can innovate, so, yeah. So you can have innovation in a way in a multi-strat. This is it. Now you have to be able and, and this becomes an important part of manager selection. So so is doing this uh, uh, survey with with Kaya on, on, on uh, manager selection and due diligence, and so the number one issue is is that the two things that are most important for a lot of uh, uh, investors is risk management is sort of expect, and number two is, is is that in terms of you know sort of is research, you know, and and I think that in some sense implicitly they're saying this is that am I investing with a manager who can adapt and learn and be curious of the environment around him so I can, they can be go become better over time. Or they make a mistake, they could say, well, I made that mistake once, I'm not going to do it a second time. So, so I think that that curiosity research is an important component of being a good manager. And then you sort of say, and I'm willing, if people can show me that I, it, you're good at that, they're willing to pay for that. They're willing, and Part of it is then being able to say from a research perspective, can you or are you willing to share your research so that you engage as a relationship with, with the client? And I think that some managers do that very well and some of them do it very poorly. Some quant managers have been, you know, so we'll sort of say the type that they're very guarded about what they do and how they do it. And so, and I've gotten to the point is, is, is that, uh, so I, I use the analogy of chefs and cookbooks and, and I've been using it for a while. So if, if you've heard it before, <laughs> stop me, but you know, you, you go to a bookstore. So you go, you go in the bookstore and you say, I'm going to go down to the you know cooking session and you go see all these chefs have all these cookbooks you know like you go to the, you know you know the best barbecue and, and or they get the best how to do this french souffle you go in there you take the book you look at it they say okay here's all the ingredients you need okay here's all the steps you got to go through to do this here's all the pictures of what i'm going to do and then i'm going to give you a description first you do this then you do this and here's what it's going to look like and so you take it. So like, oh, I got to buy this book. This is that. This is I, I going to be able to do a a nice souffle when I get home. And what happens when you get home and you try to do uh, replicate that uh, that recipe? What happens? What do you think happens? Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work out. I mean, we've had we've had lots of these types of examples where you know we wrote this adaptive asset allocation paper back in 2011. We've had at least a handful of managers come up to us or ex-managers come up to us and say, we read this paper, we replicated it, we ran this in our own strategy, we made a couple of tweaks, inevitably, right? right? We made a couple of tweaks to make it our own and they fell flat, right? It just, you know, they didn't have the fundamental understanding that that went into, you know, why the decisions that were made 
Um, so I, I, I generally, I can agree with that to a point. I do think that there is an, there is reason to believe that if you share, um, if you share all your secrets, then you're going to give your competitors um, a, a much easier time to eventually catch up to you, right? Like there's right. a lot of really smart, highly incentivized, highly motivated people uh, in this space. And, um, and, you know, risk premia are probably not, um, not going away, but, but there is a, there is a limited amount of alpha, right? So to the extent right. that you believe that, that there's alpha in your process, whether there's alpha in your, um, your model creation, your backtesting framework, your, your innovation pipeline, how you, how you approach the problem. I don't know. There's, there's institutional alpha too. the way the, the workflows within your company. There's a variety of different sources of potential alpha. Right. But, but that, that alpha is definitionally scarce. Right. And now, um, I, so yeah. I will sort of say that, uh, well, one, I think that there's a happy medium. So there's sometimes even when you go to the recipes, this is it, they'll give you some pictures, but they don't sort of say like, okay, here's how you have to knead the dough a certain way to get it just right. But so, so you got to hold back some stuff, but, but I think that uh, one thing that I've, the term I like, and I think AQR uses it, is, is that there's craftsman alpha. Craftsman and that's how yeah. you put everything together. So, so it's, it's so, so like you could sort of say, add ah, trend follower. Eh, okay. That's, you know, I, I look at past prices. I could use some moving average, you know, or, so I could use some other uh, more sophisticated approach, but, you know, it's still looking for trends. Okay. It's, it's, there's, you know, it's not that hard. We haven't invented a new way of looking at trends in the last, you know, 20 years. This is that you know, there's ways that you get a little bit of an edge, but, you know, if there's no trends, you're not going to make money. But what really is separates a lot of the managers is what, you know, is called the craftsman alpha. Of how do you take that trend, a single model for a single asset, and how do you bundle that together into a portfolio? What's the sizing? What's the way in which you determine what's going to be the maximum position? How do you manage the risk? How do you sort of set up stop losses? And so, so when you sort of say that, uh, if I'm doing a, if I'm looking at a manager, or if I was doing a due diligence, I'd sort of say like, okay, you're probably not going to tell me you know, how you're, what's the driver for how you, you we'll call it the signal extraction. But what I'm really interested in is all that craftsman alpha. How do you get that? And I've seen so many times where I've got like a, an okay model, but if you have the right craftsman alpha, if you know how to bundle it together in a portfolio, you could, you're not going to take the ugly ducking, duckling and make it win a beauty pageant, but you could take someone who's, who's, not you know you could take a good model and you could turn it into a, a much better model if you if yeah. you do the craftsman yeah. alpha correctly and so, your souffle can actually arrive at the right consistency right that's it, essentially it's, how exactly how, and, and 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 i always say another way to put it is is, is that uh you know we, as systematic managers as trend i'll have to sort of say like i'm actually running a factory okay my inputs are price. It could be other stuff. So I'm, I got inputs coming into the fact and my return. Okay. So, and my quality control is my risk. So in some senses is that, so I got to think about what's going on in the shop. How, how, do, how, what's the production line? You know, you know, what's, 
you know, how do I make sure I got quality control of my data? How do I get quality control of what I'm doing? How do I got to make sure that, you know, everything is all my bolts are put on properly and it's all the little details of, you know, running a factory. And Funny so enough. there's no glamour in running a factory is, is that we're on the shop floor and we're, we're you know, we got a production line. So, uh, yeah. We're not thinking Funny enough, our, our image lunches with companies. <laughs> Funny enough, our image in our in our deck of the alpha process is a factory line. Okay, so you got the little together. smokestacks. A little smokestack, yeah. you got the funnel that comes in, what you exclude, what you include, how do you optimize? Yeah, it's pretty it's right. it's and, it really is it, the whole process, that craftsmanship alpha that that and I, I don't know how the, whether that resonates well with clients. I guess from a client perspective, I would sort of say that you know, I would really feel good about the fact that, you know, like, okay, these guys really think of themselves as engineers who are running a factory. Cause I think it's sort of say, if it's, if it's a good factory, then it should lead to repeatable success. And, and if somebody said like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a big thinker, but I don't care, sort of get into all the, like the nuances and all the deep details, then, then I, I get a little bit, I would get a little bit more nervous. Not to mention yeah. minimizing key man risk and all that, right? With that type yeah. of machinery. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. The, uh, the, you know, the process is the star, not an individual. And so, right. so yeah, the, the, and you're buying, and you say like, well, what are you paying a management fee for? Well, you, you got to run the factory. So, and then, yeah. and, and you say like, and the quality of what's coming out of the factory, that's what you're paying the incentive fee for. So speaking of that, what are your thoughts on replication ETFs? Have you uh, put any thought into that? Where do you think that ends up? You know, what is it? the thing that scares you is, is the fact is that there are more ETFs now in individual stocks that we've got trading. So, so, so the whole you know issue is is, is that uh, it's at some level some of the ETF uh, business is turned into a marketing business as opposed to a uh, a solution business. So, so in some sense, if if I wanted to trade a basket very efficiently in a in a in a, f- a form, uh, you know, then ETF is a, is a great way to trade a basket from a retail perspective. Is this? Is but but then when you get beyond this, where we're going to sort of say, well, we're we're going to have active ETFs. We're going to have you know different types of replication uh, baskets. So. Then, then you sort of say, like, well, what what problem are you trying to solve? Right. Yeah. No, I agree. And um, there is some element of, um, you know, a, a, you know, the Tommy Hilfiger effect. Uh, Tommy Hilfiger being the, the beyond which there are no further derivatives. Right. Like the, you've you've got trend managers who derive their strategies from some of the original, like the OG trend guys. And then you've got this this second level of derivative manager that is, you know, deriving the performance of of these other derivative managers. I mean, it's like now we're going to, you know, eventually we're just going to have replicators, the replicators, and it'll be uh, turtles all the way down. Yeah. (laughs) Now, now when you the thing that you always look at at replication is, is that, you know, and, and, you know, I know you've seen, let's say, okay, how can I be able to create a. uh, you know, let's say uh, a hedge fund strategy that I'm going to replicate with other factors. And what you find out is, is, is that the uh, R squared that they have is still 
really low. And then you say, I could have factors that make, uh, that are significant, that are close representation of what's going on. But the amount that I can explain of the variation relative to the total variation is, is very, very low. And you say like, well, the amount that's unexplained, is that where all of the, uh, creativity and skill lies right so you can yeah. sort of say that there's you you've got all the major factors that might be associated with that s strategy but by the definition if it's if you're looking at sort of replicating using some linear regression you're still going to have a tremendous amount of the variation that's unexplained and is that unexplained portion the the skill portion so uh, and they say like, well, okay, that really doesn't help you that much. If let's say all the skill portion is not what you can explain, they say like, I don't know if that does you much. <laughs> and the yeah. volatility that that is part of that unexplained portion of the replication ETF might just be pure noise and could lead to right. problematic years, let's just say, or wonderful years, right? You can get a good luck either way, good or bad. Well, overcrowding, like the, the overcrowding can help you on the way up. Uh, and the self-fulfilling prophecy and capital flowing in. And then all of a sudden that marginal dollar starts to seep out. And then all of a sudden the, uh, the door is not wide enough for everybody to leave. And so the uh, capitulation of the replication strategy drives an industry that was actually providing a solution uh, to be bundled by the uh, marketing tool, as uh, Mark put it. Now, I will sort of say that there are a couple of things, that, you know, as, as I sort of said, like I, I've just indicted some replication. But when you look at, for example, private equity, this is that, that when you think about uh, and, and no investors really talk directly, but when they come in there and you show them your returns and you show them your risk, your return to risk profile. And then, you know, they're looking at it, they're going, uh, you know. And you say like, hey, I'm doing well relative to my peer group. I'm doing relative to, well to the others. But, you know, the, the, the elephant in the room or the shadow behind here is, is that they're going to say like, well, I can invest in private equity. I could get double digit returns. I get no volatility. I only have to mark to market once a year. And, uh, you know, I'm going to lock that money up for seven years, you know, and, uh, and, and they're always going to be able to sell out all those investments and I'm going to do great. This is, is it like. Holy smoke! This is like like. Can you imagine what you know? Some of those marks at the end of this year are going to be, where they they you know <laughs> where if you mark it once is that there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of pain in the streets. Well, Sequoia is going to be interesting, in. right? All these pre private, they, a lot of them haven't marked down their their losses. A lot of them are F, of, of uh, FTX investors. That are, so right. I'm going to see how that goes. And, and then, then when then, you sort of say from a replication point of view, you can sort yeah. of say. You know that the, that there is a um, you know if you lever up some of you know different indices, you're going to get a close approximation to a private equity return. So mm -hmm. it may that's not right. be the best private equity return, but it's going to give you private equity like returns because that's what they're doing. They're leveraging up uh, up equity exposure. Now, the reason why people don't want to do it is because like if I take a leverage position in, you know, a number of, let's say, small cap indices or different types of indices, well, I got to take that mark to market every day. So, I, you know, I don't want to take that pain. So so even though I have the liquidity, 
even though I'm going to get similar return and I sort of get a much lower fee schedule. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At the end of the day, this is that I don't want to take that mark to market. And, yeah. you know, the pain of mark to market is, is the bane out of a lot of investors. This is, is that what you think about it is, is that think of trend following or think of all of the high volatility. What would happen if, let's say, a trend following strategy, you say, like, you're going to buy it on January 1. We're going to stick it in a drawer. And we can't look at it except until the end of the year. And at the end of the year, we're going to open up the drawer and then say what you did. This is that if only. For the most part, I think a lot of people would sort of say, like, hey, this is not a bad strategy. I like trend following. This is that if you just sort of said, put it in a drawer, open it up once a year, take a peek, and you say, like, damn, this is a good strategy. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, what, what is, it's, what it's is all it? He's calling it, he's, he's calling it a cliff volatility recycling. Volatility. Recycling or volatility washing? Oh, yeah, thought, yeah, because yeah, it's like no volatility, volatility laundering. It's like money laundering. That's volatility, yeah, volatility laundering, laundering, right? And that, it's yeah. just again going back to human nature and what we need and what we should have doesn't necessarily jive with what we need. Um, a, a way of volatility laundering that I'm finding interesting is that those those uh, hybrid strategies, right? Those return stack strategies that. You're hiding some beta. You, we know that when you grab your, your equity and you add some trend following, the line gets smoother. The correlation is about zero long term. Yeah. Gonna get about, and if you show people, choose a line over the last 15 years that you'd prefer, they prefer the, the hybrid line. A way of volatility laundering might be like starting to look at those kind of combined um, return stack combos, right? And we'll sort of say no one, uh, people that may not have started out and said, I'm intending to launder, you know, volatility because that's my my road to success. It just sort of then <laughs> takes a life on its own. Uh, or similarly, sure. say, you know, from the, the machine return, does it. Yeah. yeah, from the trend following perspective, is like, like, and I've seen this from managers, so you say like, well, what we're going to do is I'm going to have a, a, uh, a long position in equities attached to my trend following over the you know last you know decade and a half. So, so in some sense, you say like, yeah, but that you could tear those pieces apart and they could do that themselves. You're going to uh, pay an incentive fee for that portion. So, so you know there are CTAs who do a little of that you know volatility laundering by sticking in some long term tr trend for equities to be able to do that. So, so yeah. uh, people. Uh, in a lot of different forms, it's just not, it's not just a private equity guys who do it. Fair enough. Well, long-term trend following does embed some pretty substantial market beta, yeah. right? Just just mechanically, it does. So um, that, that short-term trend following just just uh, just doesn't. It gets whatever those returns are, they're going to be a lot less correlated to the underlying markets than the long-term trend right. followers are just mechanically. But for the long-term trend follower, his intent is not to launder returns to smooth it out, to try to give Fair it, enough. to sell a better product. He's just saying, this is who I am. And I'm just sort of saying that I believe that uh, long-term trends are going to give me the best returns. And so given that there's a long-term positive movement for equities, is it means that in general, you should be more long-term uh, with those positions. So it's de facto, it, it comes out there, but it's not an attempt to launder or to sort of smooth out the returns. It's just say, this is who yeah. I am. Yeah. Intent no, matters. Yeah. 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 For sure. Um, before we let you go, Mark, and I know you've already been extremely generous, but um, I just, do you have any insights that you um, feel are 
more unique to your process in terms of, of manager selection um, in the systematic space that you would want to share before we wrap this up? Well, the one thing that I guess is that, and this is from the survey work I did with uh, with Kaya's, is, is that uh, it's interesting that they've uh, we tried to rank order what are the strategies that are most difficult for investors to you know sort of you know you know do their due diligence. What's sort of most difficult for you to figure out? Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll just do a quick search. What do you what do you think are the most uh, difficult uh, strategies to for uh, for investors to uh, to make a decision on? Well, I would think structured credit's got to be up there, but also I'm sure quant quant systematic has got to be has got to be up there too. So so it's like uh, venture cap and private equity are hard, you know. So because you know you are making a long term, you're locking in an investment, and you know it's, it's, there's a sort of trust me factor. So. Uh, so, and then you got to talk about marks and other stuff, but, but global and systematic strategies is, is that they say that we have a, uh, we have a high, uh, a high weight on quantitative analysis for picking the managers, but we still find that these are the hardest strategies to be able to understand. And so, and then we say, say like, well, what is the deciding factor for picking systematic and uh, you know global macro, he says it's it based on qualitative judgment. Uh, it's it's on the qualitative side. It's not the quantitative numbers. It's and it's qualitatively. Can I be able to determine whether they can generate future performance? And and I found that sort of really interesting because you sort of say like the classic is is that you got systematic managers. You've got, uh, you know, we, we got good statisticians, and yet they're telling me that, that it, uh, my choice of managers is going to be based on the qualitative judgment of what I think of the, uh, the manager himself. I actually think that I would, I would lean in the same direction, right? Because, I mean, aside from the sort of operational due diligence, um, you know, compliance, et cetera, yeah. what is your experimental design? How do you gain confidence in your approach? How do you, you know, quantify the range of expected outcomes? You know, how do you think about risk management? You know, these, these quest the answers to these questions, I think, are fundamentally vastly more um, informative about what to expect from the manager going forward than, you know, just looking at past returns. Right. And, and I think that, well, Putting it in a slightly different framework, it, it's it's you know what's your uh, awareness of the world around you and how you sort of fit in your tools to be able to take advantage of the world in which you think we exist in, and and in some sense you'd say like uh, a you know data scientist or a statistician has has a tremendous toolbox, you know, so you got all these different techniques you could be able to use, mm-hmm. and. What separates you know, a good manager from a great manager is, is that does he know what is the appropriate tool to use in the world in which we live? And in some sense, when you think about it, is, is, is that it's like, yeah, if I, if I take a, uh, uh, you know, a uh, hammer and I use that to screw, <laughs> to, to screw something in, it's not going to work. Hammer's a good tool. Just not not, but it has to be used for the right program. And so, so, so it's being able to say, I understand the markets well enough to be able to say, I 
can appreciate and I can tell you why I use this kind of tool or this type of technique in this kind of situation, because this is where I'm going to be able to create an edge. And, and I think that that's, that's critical to the, uh, to the whole process. And, and, you know, and I think that having this sort of awareness of the world around you is critical. So there's a, you know, he's a Columbia uh, historian is Adam Tooze. Yeah, so he's written stuff about the crash and he's, he's a really prolific uh, writer. And so, yeah, so he he's, uh, spends a lot of time talking about the poly crisis. Yeah. So I, exactly. So, 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 so it's, you know, the poly crisis, because then when you think about a poly crisis, then you say like, okay, how can I extract if there's conflicting crises that all can occur at the same time, you know, how do I sort of be able to handle that? And how can I be able to deal with that? And in some senses that, that you'd say like, well, some macro strategies won't work well if you have a poly crisis because you're, you're getting different conflicting signals. And so, so in some sense, you'd say like, okay, I might have to put more weight on just what is the process of what's going on in flow, what's going on in trend, because I've got these conflicting you know, headwinds and tailwinds from different types of crises so a perfect example is, is that like, hey, we're fighting inflation, we're fighting a debt crisis, we're fighting a, uh, an energy crisis, we have a geopolitical crisis, we've got, uh, you know, trade issues. So all of these things are sometimes in, in conflict. And then sometimes using prices might be the best way to deal with that, because it's, it's as I, I say, price is prime, the best way to sort of get at some of these issues. Yeah. On a, an ensemble of models, what did you, what do you say? Style, timing, and markets, markets, markets. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, just, yeah. just ensembling so, and yeah. And, the and, ensemble is probably a better word to use. So I, no, no, but yeah, yeah, it clarifies a little bit what the yeah. what the important steps are because you can have, I think, um, was it uh, Chris Schindler talked about managers coming to him and saying, "Look how uncorrelated I am." And he's like, yeah, that's because you don't trade these 20 markets. Um, so you're uncorrelated for a very simple reason, the markets you chose. Right. Right? And, and the, the data would tell you otherwise. I go, this is pretty good. It's uncorrelated. I wonder what it is. You look under the hood and you realize it's just less, cor- less, less diversified strategy that um, used a cheap trick to try and fool us. Right. right. And, and I think that... You know this this whole idea of style timing in markets. It's a nice simple way. Is this and when you think about again storytelling and narrative, you say like you want them to when you walk away, uh, you want them to remember something. And it's, uh, I, we always have to uh, have to a joke is is that sometimes you're not always seeing the chief investment officer. You might see in an analyst as opposed to the the committee or the chief. And, and that analyst then has to convert what you've been telling and you've been telling them a great story. You're giving them all the details and he has to, uh, and there's a good chance that he walks into elevator with his boss. They're on the 20th floor and he has to explain, and he goes, who'd you see? And he said, well, I saw these guys from resolve. And he said, well, what are they all about? What do they do? Yeah, and, and and if he can't explain it by the time he gets to the you know to the to the lobby of the building, you're done. It's, it's so, almost like he'll be like, "Well, never mind. I'll tell yeah, you." Yeah, never yeah. mind. So, so if you could sort of say, "Hey, look, they're uh, they're uh, it's complicated. They're systematic. They're disciplined. They follow. They have different styles, different timing. They have different markets, and they and they follow trends. And you know, here's what they're going to do in a in in, in a uncorrelated way when there's a crisis. You say like." 
okay, I got it. Let's 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 yeah. you know, send me the report. So so right. that's what you got to get to. <laughs> yeah, it's the quality of the narrative it's that the analyst can produce. Right. If the narrative, if an analyst can actually frame it properly and produce the right kind of narrative back to your earlier point, then the story is uh, as sound as uh, and the uh, CIO can get behind it. Right. And, and I probably say, like Richard, this is it. It's one of those things that almost said, like, you know, I talk to the analyst and he sort of likes it. I say, like, well, look, tell you what, I'll write you a one pager. So so just in case you forgot anything and then I'll send it to you and. A lot of times they'll just say, like, I love that because, like, I want to get it right. I got to condense all of what you told me in one page. And if and so so there's the pitch book, which, you know, everybody's got to have a pitch book, but no one reads. So that, but then they need to convert that into a, you know, Bullet like points. a one paper to that's say, what we do. Okay, that's exactly what, what we do. do and this is what we got to show the investment committee and because they're not going to show them a 20 page pitch book. So, so it's got to be condensed in there. And, and, and you can sort of say, like, if they have to do it on their own, they're not going to get your story right. So, yeah. so it's almost as though Give me the tweet. What's the tweet? Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, it'll be like, like or unlike. Yeah. And uh, so, so, so you've got to do that for them. Yeah. That's right. Well, that's good. We'll be in touch with you next week for you to get together with us and the sales team and to crystallize that. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> This is a pleasure. Um, I really liked it. I, you know, it's, I'm, I'm just checking my watch. We, we've had a long call. So, so, yeah. so, so uh, yeah. for your enjoy time, Mark. Yes, they've been a lot of fun, shared a lot of really valuable insights. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, really appreciate your thanks time. Thanks everyone for great tuning in and, for, and, and have a great yeah. weekend. Yeah, Mark, um, where can people find you before uh, we let you go? Yeah, it's uh, at uh, mrepsinski at amphitrading.com. So that's A M P H I trading And then you're also on Twitter, right? Ripsinski, then, uh, you know, well, they go on YouTube and they write it out. Yeah. They got it right there on the bottom. Exactly. There, so, uh, exactly. so, uh, but love to be able to talk with you. And, and one of these days I'm going to get up to Canada soon. So, so we're going to have to get together. So when you're not, uh, you know, hanging out in the Caymans or whatever, <laughs> that sounds great. You're welcome yeah, to come down there all too. the time. That's right. I'm so in Toronto, so come February. anytime, Mark. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Have a great Have Friday. A Thanks to everyone who Thank participated and with good questions and comments. And uh, we'll see you next week. Okay. Good talking to you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestorsAlb. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, gold and commodities, 
So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.